My friends, you are in for a treat today with today's amazing guest. But before we get there, I want to take a moment just to say two important words. I don't say them enough, but here they are. Thank you. Thank you. As you may have heard, my second book, In Awe, arrived in bookshelves around the world, and it became an instant national bestseller. So let me say these words again to you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, if you have not yet had an opportunity to check out the book in awe, you have that chance right now. I want you to visit me at readinawe.com. In awe is about rediscovering your childlike wonder to unleash inspiration and joy and meaning in your life. I don't think there could be a better time than the pandemic, than the recession, than this period of isolation that we currently face to rediscover childlike wonder. So again, get your copy, send one to a friend, learn more about it at readinawe.com or wherever beautiful books are sold. And now on to today's episode. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. My friends, does your life today look different than the one you imagined? Well, if you are like me and the majority of our listeners, absolutely is the answer to that. But just because it's different. Just because many of us are dealing with challenges, and maybe some of us dealing with massive ones right now, does not need to rob us of the joy for today or the hope for tomorrow. Our guest today on this podcast will remind you of this truth, and let me tell you a little bit of their story right now. In 2008, Catherine and Jay Wolf were newlyweds and parents to their six-month-old son when the unimaginable happened. At just 26 years of age, Catherine suffered a massive brainstem stroke. After a rare life-saving surgery, Catherine spent nearly two months in a coma-like state. With her faithful husband, Jay, by her side, Catherine had to relearn how to breathe. She had to relearn how to talk, how to eat, how to just about do everything. And eventually, she chose to thrive. While no one wants terrible pain or unbearable tragedy in their life, this couple is a tremendous example of finding hope in the midst of the storm. Today, Catherine and Jay Wolf remind us that suffering isn't the end of our story, but the beginning of a new one. So today, my friends, join me in welcoming this beautiful couple on the inside and out. Their names are Catherine and Jay Wolf. Catherine and Jay, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks for having us, Thank John. you. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my most loyal listeners, her name is Amy O'Leary Geraci. She tunes in from Austin, Texas. I also happen to be related to her. She's my sister. A few years ago, yeah. she gave me your book, Hope Heals, and... Uh, I was busy, so I didn't quite get around to it right away. And then about three weeks later, my mother gave it to me. And then about six weeks later, my wife gave it to me. 
And uh, I'm a very slow man, but after you get this book again (laughs) and again and again, you recognize maybe it's time to pay attention to it. That's That's funny. funny. You guys, thanks. Yeah, thank you. uh, Yeah. I will, but your book and your testimony, your life story is so profound. But for those who aren't yet exposed to it, give us a snapshot of what your life looks like today. Oh, sure. So essentially out of absolutely nowhere with no warning, no symptoms before anything, I had a very massive brainstem stroke um, when I was 26 years old. And it was caused by an ABM, which is an arterial venous malformation, which is essentially a malformed collection of blood vessels that grew in my brain from birth Mm. that I never knew I had, like a really bad birth defect in a really bad aneurysm that Mm. basically burst in my brain and caused a massive brainstem stroke. And in order to keep me alive, the wise surgeon um, had to sacrifice many things on my body. So I am severely disabled today. I cannot walk on my own. Um, I use a wheelchair and a cane. I can't drive a car. Um, I have many big health challenges and I have almost no use of one hand with because I have no fine motor control. Mm-hmm. And um, many other issues. I have double vision and I'm deaf in one ear and my body is pretty beat up. I had um, 11 months of not eating food, but now I can eat food again. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) However, it's not um, like it used to be, for sure. I definitely have um, swallow and speech problems, as you're no doubt hearing. Mm. And Jay, uh, your side of what life looks like today, and then we'll get into the backstory. But talk about your your journey today, just what, sure. on your on a day in a day out basis. What's your what's your life like? Yeah, life is um, really good and hard, and that's kind of the theme of of our life, our ministry, our second chance. I think is that we can hold both of those two at the same time, and and. Uh, as a caregiver, as a husband, as a dad, um, this season is so full and um, there's a lot of challenges and obstacles. We um, do what most couples would consider a nightmare, which is that we work together. <laughs> and we are also an impatient caregiver relationship and parenting a toddler and a preteen. So we've, we've got some unique challenges and all doing that with uh, one part of the team not being able to drive and, and walk well and having some unique challenges. And yet at the same token, giving all of that fuel is the reality that it's a second chance life that we're living together. And uh, it just puts a whole different motivation on it. And so um, we, we have a ministry that we started. Um, we also are advocates and um, big champions of the disabled community. And uh, have a camp that we started for families with disabilities called Hope Heals Camp. So we sort of do uh, a lot and it continues to evolve and, uh, it's really cool that we get to do it together and that we are, we're still here doing, <laughs> doing, uh, and figuring out what it is that we are meant to do in this time. Well, I think you're doing it incredibly well as a team. As you said, life is good and life is hard. Uh, I'm going to yeah. back up a little bit beyond uh, where we are right now, 38 or so years to the spring of 1982, people. <laughs> 
Uh, wow, yeah. Reagan's yeah, in office. Exactly. Springsteen is rocking the house. Man, life is good. And and you two are born three weeks and 200 miles apart. Catherine, uh-huh, yeah. we'll start with you first. Where were you born? I was born in Athens, Georgia, where I lived my entire life until college. And it, it, give us a snapshot of what life was like in Athens, Georgia in the mid-80s for, for you. Oh, well, it was um, a wonderful place to go up. Athens is a college town, so it's like small southern town where people are very kind to each other and you know, not remotely perfect, but a very sweet, um, you know, nice quality of life place for sure. But with the university in town, just it was um, a tremendous place to go. Many just really interesting, thoughtful offerings of all kind, great restaurants, fun stuff to do. So it was um, it's a wonderful place to grow up. I have incredible parents and um, my grandparents lived down the street from us and life was life was great. In 1982, <laughs> 3, 4, and all that. <laughs> we'll remain great for a while, and eventually you're going to meet a man who is seated next to you, and we'll talk about that now. Jay, you grew up a full state away, a couple hundred miles away, way over there in Alabama. What, oh, what yeah. city were you born, and what was life like for you? Well, I was born in Montgomery, Alabama, which is the state capital, and uh, my dad is and was then a pastor. And, um, yeah, we— uh, lived there for a couple years and then I moved to Washington DC. And so I kind of have a combo, I think of, a some Southern sensibility, uh, with the melting pot and, and cultural driven metropolitan DC vibe. So <laughs> we, uh, but then we moved back to, we moved back to Montgomery, um, sort of in when I was about 10. So it's a good mix. And, uh, yeah, we love, Love the South, uh, love the Bible Belt. It has its issues, you know, like every place. And yeah. uh, so we've kind of, we've recently moved back there after being in California 14 years. So we- Where are you, John? Um, I live in St. Louis, Missouri, and I've been as far oh, as uh, about seven miles from my house. So I've really okay. spread my wings. Yeah, I'm, I'm really a, a cultured man. <laughs> You love it. You love it there. Got it. Cool. I assume then. I do love it. I love it. I met a girl from here and our our roots are deep. We're we're, like you. We're blessed and we recognize that. And we also recognize the imperfections. And rather than complain about them, we try to work to redeem them and and make things better. You you two eventually journey away from home and you you meet each other in a cafeteria in Sanford. Not Stanford, in Sanford University. Exactly, yes. Sanford in Birmingham, Alabama. So I'm going to begin, I think, first with JJ. When you first saw Catherine, what struck you? What what were you attracted to? I loved um, this sort of paradoxical, uh, well, I guess probably in all my life, I, I appreciate paradox. And so I saw this beautiful, gregarious blonde bombshell woman carrying this tray full of, I mean, just <laughs> piled with food because we had, you know, it's freshman year. Everybody's into the whole buffet line of uh, the deep South. So they were feeding us well. And I was just like, wow, who is this woman, this force who is uh, going to live it up and just, she's celebrating. The but grits were piled high, fried chicken. Yeah, she, I mean, it was it was good had, stuff. She just had all of it. And I was like, that is awesome. So uh, we became friends first. She was still dating her high school boyfriend those first few months of college and just became close as friends. And then started going to sorority parties 
together and fraternity parties and and um, just spending more time together and connecting deeply. And yeah, I did break up with the other guy. Hello. Then we yeah <laughs> before yeah. Catherine, did you break up with the other guy for Jay or just because uh, that relationship came to its natural conclusion? I think it came to its natural conclusion. Um, thankfully, I I would love to make it really scandalous, but thankfully <laughs> it's not. Don't worry. It was, um, yeah, it was kind of an interesting relationship. Everybody, uh, I think has this very kind and aspirational maybe view of our relationship and marriage, but we're both firstborns. We're both very totally. strong-willed and type A. And um, and certainly in that season, I was, you know, I'm a pastor's kid from the South. So it's almost like out of a textbook, you know, you're going to go through this rebellious stage in college. And I was trying to find myself and my faith and making my own. And Catherine, you know, was actually on her own journey, maybe a little more on the legalist side, I'll just say, uh, but also just, you know, she was we sort of divergent in many seasons. But then I think, Beautiful thing is we kind of balance each other back out and and brought each other back to this more middle ground. And uh, by the end of college, decided that we wanted to do marriage and do life together. Well, November 6, 2004, you have an intimate wedding. I think you only invited 600 of your closest and nearest and dearest friends. What do you remember about that day? Oh, wow. Well, it was um, a total blur. Not much, <laughs> Not much is the well, answer. We've seen in the video. Yeah, we, we've seen in the video. It was a great day. <laughs> it was a very un- unusually uh, perfect weather day yeah. in Georgia. And it was it was almost like California weather uh, in November. And so there was sort of this foreshadowing, I think, of hmm. uh, what was ahead, which was that we would move to California. But yeah, we were 22, you know, and I think it was um, there had been a lot of buildup to the wedding and planning and drama and um it was just it was a really beautiful almost just release like oh it's we just we got we got through that season and really it was the whole season of our our childhoods and and it was the beginning of the whole new new life yeah that we could have never really imagined what would be ahead but it was it was the beginning it's really sweet and beautiful you you talk about it being the end of your childhood the reality is you're midstream in your childhood you're 22 years old when you say the words exactly tell me 22 uh, Jay hadn't started shaving yet. So you're 22 know, right? years old. You take a <laughs> vow, and, and I want you to hear these words again, and then tell me what they meant to you then and what they mean to you now as a more seasoned adult. So here we go. Uh, for worse, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. When you say those words to a gorgeous young man or woman standing next to you, hand in hand, looking perfect, life in front of you, what did they mean to you way back then? And, and how has that perspective changed as you've aged together? Yeah, I think um, in that moment, it's pretty impossible, I think, for any human to really uh, understand the weight of that promise and not in a ball and chain sort of sense, but rather the profound gift that those words are to each other. Um, and that you're not just going to transactionally stay, assuming it's a great melding of you know kingdoms and this is beneficial and it's getting us to our best life and we're beautiful and healthy and wealthy and you know all things are just how we envision. But rather to say that no matter what happens, if it's the worst case scenario, you're not going to do it alone and we're going to do it together. And um, in in our experience of faith that we feel like this is what God is telling all of us. <laughs> like this is, 
these are the words of um, something that is a deeper kind of commitment. And, um, and so that's, you know, what's cool is like, you, you know, you make these promises, maybe you didn't totally get what you were doing. And yet these are this, this promise was spoken over um, our marriage and each other. And it's carried us when different seasons of, of life and struggle and emotion and all that threatened to pull our relationship apart. There was this, there was this opportunity to keep going because we had given each other this huge assurance that no matter what, we were going to keep showing up. You move to Los Angeles not long after that wedding. Why did you head out to LA? Um, well, it's pretty funny. I think we wanted this wild adventure when we were young and fancy free, and nothing could be crazier than a move 2,500 miles away to California from the deep south. So we said, sure. Um, I'd been doing some commercial prep modeling work in college, and I got an agent in Los Angeles, and Jay um, was accepted to Pepperdine Law School. So we kind of both were pursuing some dreams of law and entertainment industry and just kind of having a fun young adventure in um, what is just a really incredible part of the country in, in many ways. <laughs> and we didn't know anybody really in California. So there wasn't a, a real sensical reason other than just adventure and a dream. And I actually didn't know I had gotten into Pepperdine until we were actually in process driving across the country <laughs> with all of our stuff. So right. it's funny now that I think back and that in some ways was just, you know, youthful naivete and exuberance. Uh, and yet I think even more deeply, it was really this sense of um, a, a pattern of saying, we're going to jump in in faith that this is um, the direction and, and the place and the call that we're, leaning into and it might not even make sense you know from the from the outward um details and that really didn't in some ways i remember my mom called me almost just like giddy she's like you got in thank god like (laughs) i was like well i don't you know what were you gonna do if you hadn't but we just felt like okay this it'll work out and and it did it sure has and then it uh it works out in an even better way on october 16th 2007 what happened We have a wonderful little surprise coming to our lives. We definitely were not expecting a baby in law school, but (laughs) uh, we had James Thompson Wolf on October 16th. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the word surprise, and you said we weren't expecting this. You're in law school, Jay, and Catherine, you're kind of kicking the tires of doing some modeling, but life is just, it's raw. There's not a strong foundation really in California yet. Were you at all ready to have a baby? No, for sure. No, no, we were, we were babies having babies. Right. Remember we went to like the babies R us because we didn't know where else to go. (laughs) Unexpected time. And it really, I I think it gave us PTSD. Yeah, it seriously did. We probably left like in shock or like, this can't be our lives. Oh my gosh. When we had our first, I remember bringing them home. Or I remember when they handed the child to us as we leave the hospital three days later, driving away thinking like, do, do these nurses know what they've just done? Like, we, we are so <laughs> ill-equipped to bring home Jack. And so you bring Seriously. home James. You love him and raise him and, and guide him and feed him for six months. And then on April 21st, if I'm getting this date accurate, yes, life again changes dramatically. And uh, Catherine, why don't you... To share with us what you remember about that day. 
Yeah, yeah, it was a totally normal morning. I felt weird, um, dizzy, and just kind of just weak and out of it. Um, but that wasn't like very unusual since I'd had a baby six months before. So I um, was used to feeling kind of weird. I'm not sleeping. I'm breastfeeding. I'm just, you know, yuck. Yeah. So I decided um, I just, you know, put those yucky feelings on the Mac burner and get on with my day. And I put James down for a nap in the other room midday and went into the kitchen and began preparing a little bit of lunch. And Jay happened to come home uh, in like a 45-minute window um, to print a paper for a class back at the law school. So he was actually in our married housing apartment when I um, am in the kitchen and suddenly, um, you know, the room's kind of spinning. Everything's really loud all of a sudden. I fall to my hands and knees. They go numb. Mm. I start throwing up and I call up to Jay, who's able to call 911. And the paramedics quickly come and determine that it is something serious. They'll need to take me in to the hospital and um, I lose consciousness. We, we think I fully go into a coma at that point and I would not wake up from a then coma-like state I was in for almost two and a half months. Mm. Um, so I don't have any memory for the next two and a half months from being in that apartment on um, that day in April to um, what I've learned later would be 16 hours of micro brain surgery um, where the the brave surgeon Nestor Gonzalez would you know very carefully and precisely perform a surgery that is the equivalent of operating what, what was it consistency of uh butter and the size of hair. Right, exactly, uh, yeah. With your the, intracranial nerves. Right, the intracranial nerves. And removing was, this area. Right, which which he had to make the decision, which is so powerful, that in um, my tremendous wounding, there was healing and things were sacrificed. He made the very careful decision to sacrifice uh, many things on my body. My um, face is paralyzed on one side now. And, uh, you know, I, I can't even walk. Yeah. And um, the deafness in the ear and all of it was actually not because I had a stroke and I am a stroke survivor. I mean, it is and it isn't. Yes. But the reason it's not fully is because I actually am coping with a life with many disabilities because the wise surgeon made the careful decision to operate and sacrifice intracranial nerves and things in order for me to su sustain life. Well, I believe I've read, ha removed half your cerebellum. Right, yes, exactly. exactly. Which is why, why I have no balance, which is why I can't walk, exactly. Jay, as, as you know, I was burned at age nine and, and uh, put my poor mom and dad through an awful lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, a lot of walking the halls during late nights and during surgeries and during the struggles 
of darkness, man, when they wonder what will become of their loved one, this little boy. You had those same nights and those same walks and that same waiting room experience. Begin with the first one, 16 hours. Your young wife, the mother of your six-month-old, is in surgery for hour after hour after hour. What are you thinking and feeling and what are you doing during those 16 hours? Yeah, we, as I mentioned, um, or I grew up in a pastor's home. And so there was this sort of sense of bad things happening to good people. And yet I, I think we all can't help but dissociate to think, well, that's not going to happen to us though. And so I remember following the ambulance with our baby and just thinking, oh my gosh, like, t- like today is the day. Mm. It's happening to me and to us. And I can't even get my mind around this because we were 26. We don't have any health issues. Like what, what's happening? And, and we didn't even actually know what was happening at first to her, but um, we ended up at UCLA hospital. And the most powerful thing was that our friends from our church met us before we even arrived there. And um, Mm -hmm. because we had been in Pepperdine's uh, married housing in Malibu, which is, you know, about 45 minutes from LA proper. So um, all of our friends showed up in ways that were really life-changing for us. And we had gotten actually to back up really plugged into our church community. We didn't know anybody, had no family in LA, but we had gotten this new family by virtue of our church community. And, um, so they gathered there with me as I had talked to the doctor and he said, you know, you need to understand that it's not likely she's going to survive. Yeah. And again, in a matter of hours, you're just going from a normal life about to graduate law school, a new baby, just all of these really sweet endings in a way to this um, season of new marriage and grad school. And then all of a sudden those are just hanging by a thread and, um, he actually didn't even know if he'd be able to do the surgery because of all the liability. I mean, the fact that I was a lawyer was not <laughs> helping the case and um, uh, just all of the potential, you know, it's not like medicine happens in some vacuum. It's yeah. about insurance and resources and who's available. And is the team able to, to rally? And um, luckily they were, it was at UCLA hospital, which is just a fantastic uh, health system in Los Angeles. And Dr. Nestor Gonzalez was on call, a world-renowned um, surgeon known for taking the harder cases. So we, you know, we're in his hands and it was uh, certainly didn't feel coincidental that he just happened to be there. And, and this kind of stroke she was having was uh, perfectly suited for his mm. expertise and specialty. And yet still, it wasn't clear if he was going to even be able to attempt it. And and he decided to, couldn't couldn't get us out of his head, couldn't get this young mom and the baby and me out of his head. And he wanted to give her a second chance against all odds, really. And, you know, he could have gotten sued or whatever, or left her in a state worse than death and be, you know, just have to live with that. And um, I think that day she used up 10% of the entire UCLA. Um, the blood bank storage was yeah. used in her surgery because she was just bleeding out. Uh, I think her full body uh, volume of blood bled out four or five times fully oh in the surgery. So, um, so, you know, it's just very, very un, unclear whether she would survive or wake up. And he didn't look at the clock, he said. And uh, That night we gathered in the waiting room, about a hundred of us, and just really shared one of the most poignant experiences of community that I had ever had and um, cried out just to God to spare her life, read from the Bible, Romans 8. was a chapter Catherine memorized as a child, and, and that was something I remember grabbing one of those Gideon's Bibles and just reading to the community and to the crowd. And Mm. um, our families, some of them came, uh, Kevin's mom and my dad eventually from across the country 
um, to join us there. You know, again, they didn't quite know what was going on either. It was just uh, everybody was almost just in shock that it could be, that this would be really happening. Uh, I remember as the sun came up, sort of, we're sitting there as the doctor um, said that Catherine had lived. And that was on April 22nd. So to this day, we celebrate April 22nd kind of as Catherine's second birthday and sort of the Easter to our um, the Good Friday of, of when she had her stroke on April 21st. But but he said, I don't know if she's going to wake up. I don't know. Um, we had to do extensive damage even around her brainstem. Um, we removed part of her brain. We sacrificed all these nerves. And I don't know if she will wake up even, if she'll be vegetative, if she'll be right. locked in, which is a horrific thing where you're conscious, but you're completely paralyzed. Um, so uh, for some reason, that moment for me, there was this great, and um, really, again, not it didn't make a lot of sense, but I had this, pretty sure sense of hope that her life had been spared for a reason. Um, and I didn't know what we were up against, but um, it empowered me to uh, not be in despair and to feel like I could keep showing up as Catherine sort of clawed her way back to life. You know, 18 or so hours earlier, you are married next to a supermodel, raising little James together, about to graduate law school. The sun is shining high life now is radically different. I want you to share with our listeners, you know, you, you you garb up, you put on the mask, you walk into the ICU and describe your wife uh, as you saw her. You said Easter, on this Easter day, on April 22nd. And yet right. it didn't look much like Easter uh, yeah, that's to you on that day. So what, what did your wife look like laying there? Yeah, I mean, they had um, had to remove her skull and shave her head uh, in order to get to the brain. And uh, so, you know, that kind of trauma to a body and brain, it was horrifying to see her afterwards all um, bandaged up and swollen and, uh, you know, wires coming out of her body and tubes draining fluid out of her brain and, you know, life support, um, trach and just all, all the things. And uh, yeah, I remember just kind of collapsing to the ground. It was just so shocking. It was like a nightmare. And um, again, such, such an upending of a life and of all right. of our lives uh, out of the blue. And um, so it's pretty hard to even even process the reality of it. And then, um, you know, most of us have heard of a stroke, but that we don't have any context for what that even means and for what it means to have not just a stroke, but uh, a brain bleed makes up about 12% of all strokes. Most strokes are a blockage of blood, but when you have a rupture in the brain from an aneurysm or what Catherine had was an AVM, hers actually was the largest the surgeon had seen. It had four aneurysms on top of it. So it was catastrophic in, in its uh, size. And then the location around the brainstem was, you know, this was pretty much the worst case scenario. And um, so, you know, we were against, um, you know, this thing, the stroke, but yet this also hugely uh, traumatic catastrophic uh, removal of part of her brain and all right. this damage. And so, you know, I had no idea, just really prayed and hoped that she'd be able to walk, you know, out of that hospital room, uh, maybe miraculously or after a few months, kind of get better and get over it. And, you know, 40 days in, um, she finally weaned off the ventilator and life support and, you know, was hardly even responsive. Wasn't, um, you know, really able to talk or eating or, able to even hold her head up, you know, so <laughs> it was a, it was um, this revelation just that this was going to be a much longer life-changing experience than we could ever have imagined. You, you mentioned you had a hundred friends in LA after only being there for a couple of years, which is already stunning. In addition mm -hmm. to those hundred friends who were physically there and your family flying across country to be with you that day, mm -hmm. 
you start sharing things online. And one of the cool things mm-hmm. is the UCLA ties into your page. And when they do it, it uh-huh. crashes the entire UCL, UCLA yeah, database because it's such a huge following. Why did this tragedy attract so much attention? Gosh, um, well, we, we don't know for sure, but we have a lot of theories. Probably one of them has been like, it could happen to anybody any day. There was this super relatable phenomenon. This could be anybody, sister, daughter, friend, 26-year-old, young mom. It was just like everybody's worst nightmare in a way. Is that their, their person, like me, would be, you know, bouncing around normal living the day before and then the next day be dying in hospitals. So... I think that's probably one one factor okay. for sure. I would say another was there was such a slow recovery mm-hmm. that it was like a like a saga, like a soap opera, like mm-hmm. a big dramatic, you know, will she ever walk? Will she ever eat again? And what was really beautiful and, and very, you know, it was before the, the digital age we live in now where everybody posts everything on the internet. This was, um, you know, really um, taking a risk for us to put so much of it online. And it wasn't actually us. It was other people um, mm-hmm. putting it online. Um, but they there was this effect of people just wanting to check in and like almost a daily update happening. Yeah. And I think that, I think that reality of horrible things happen to people every day. Why is it that we feel we have such a cheerleading section and people, there was, you know, millions of hits on our, our caring bridge, like it's, which is a medical update site from 120 countries, this is, you know, just right out of the bat. And we're just like, kind of dumbfounded of why um, in the midst of a world full of horrible tragedies that people would really be tracking. And what that eventually made us feel was this kind of stewardship for our story and for um, how we could tell it in a way that would honor um, all the people who had cheered it on and been impacted by it from the start. And then to continue to, to make it a universal experience. So it wasn't just about us. It wasn't just about the specific, but this was a, this was an allegory. This was a microcosm of um, struggle and hope in the world. And, and it has been. Catherine, you at this time are unable, eventually, yeah, you wake up, but even then you can't really move. You can't eat, you can't speak, you can't even swallow. At right. a certain point, you go for this swallow test, and it's it's like a big turning point if you can pass the swallow test. It's the ninth time, and you don't pass. Right. I've, I've heard yeah. you say before that you went to a very dark place. I'm going to quote you. Here's what you said. I can't eat. I can't walk. I can't take care of my son. I can't do anything. I'm a mistake, and I should not even be here. Right. And then you pause. And then how do you make sense out of this darkness and begin turning it back into hope? Absolutely. Um, There are many factors that contributed to me feeling like I could cope when um, it felt like the odds were not in my favor, to say it the Hunger Games way, that everything (laughs) was, was not working. Nothing on my body was working, and I felt very caught between life and death. I had grown up, um, with a deep faith 
and really seeing the world from the perspective that God was at work and is at work in my life, in my story. But this made no sense um, at all because my life felt very forgotten and like a terrible mistake. And that there, this could not be something that God was in with me from who I know God to be. This made no sense. Mm. And um, I, I imagine that is not an actually very uncommon feeling at different points in all of our lives. And for me, what really was able to transform my understandings and thinkings in that moment, and actually to this day, they have informed everything moving forward, actually, is the notion that actually I was chosen for this, that this was actually, um, instead of just this horrific catastrophe and, you know, something to fix, and, and instead it was something to champion, mm. that most people don't live lives um, in this state. And that this was really something for me to take hold of, to be about, and instead of viewing this as God making a mistake, I chose to believe and believe very strongly to this day that God doesn't make mistakes, that there's no such thing as a mistake. God, I felt like, was speaking to me, actually. I'm not through anything weird and not audibly, but through an awakening of many of the scriptures I had known and believed since I was a child. And I felt God was very much saying that, Catherine, you're not a mistake because I don't make mistakes. I know better than you know I'm God. You're not. And somehow this is all a part of what I'm doing in your story. And um, there was such a freedom for me in recognizing that my life um, is a story. It's not just a moment. It's a story. And that I can choose to live my story well, whatever it may be. And for some reason, I love your podcast talking about inspiration, but, but that might be my primary inspiration in my life has been that, um, that, that our lives are all stories that have many chapters and much complexity. But if we can pull back the layers and wake up to what God is doing in our lives and how fully we get to live into the story we do have right in front of our faces, not the one we wish we had. Right. And um, that was just very paradigm shifting for me. You know, you should go into speaking or writing sometime. <laughs> you clearly have a gift for both. I also love the expression you used there twice. You said, I was chosen for this. I was chosen for this. And right, the only yeah. other time, a couple hundred podcasts into my career as a podcast host that I've heard someone say that is a man who had a very difficult childhood, was given up for adoption, has gone through several different bouts of cancer, and his name is the Olympic medalist himself, Scott Hamilton. Great, great, great guy. But several times in the interview, he said, you know, John, I just feel chosen. I just felt chosen. And he talked about his adopted wow. parents. Like they chose wow. him and this gift of feeling like you were chosen for this. And 
what a cool takeaway on us on this podcast in particular. If you can leave this recognizing that whatever you're going through, you've been chosen for it. It's one chapter, but it's not the end of the book. So, right, exactly. Absolutely. I deeply believe that. Jay, I think the only person that has it harder than the patient's bedside is the family member next to them. So as you are seated and walking the halls at night, um, praying and loving and encouraging and crying over your wife, what is what is getting you through that difficult time? I do think um, certainly our faith, as we referenced, has been the through line that sort of allowed us a stability no matter the high or the low of the experience and the um, no matter sort of what the unknowns were ahead, there was this sort of what we've been given for the day is enough. Um, and I think that's that sounds good in theory, but in practice, it's really um, an almost impossible task to to just stay focused on the present moment and the problems for today and not worry too much and too far ahead. I think a lot of uh, caregivers and a lot of folks who are walking aside loved ones um, are overwhelmed with the questions of what five years from now will look like and the insurance and how we pay for it and what will the mm-hmm. outcomes be. And it's just some, you know, for many people, it's too much and it's, um, it ends um, relationships and, you know, how many uh, marriages break up over um, medical catastrophe or having a child with severe special needs or something like that, because we just get too far down the road and we just think like there's, that's not a future I can do. And um, I think for me, for whatever reason, there was this sense of just showing up for today, making the next right choice. And I made plenty of wrong choices, but you know, that was kind of how uh, I I focused it. And that I think can only happen sustainably in the context of community. So this sort of idea of a village coming around you, this idea um, in the Christian tradition of the body of Christ, you know, all these different elements and, and things working together, you know, in general, just this notion that we weren't ever made to do life alone and that we are relational beings. And um, we had that and people showed up in ways that, again, it was transformational, the experience that we got to um, see how people were willing to shift the very um seasons of their life to be with us and to help meet our needs and to help uplift us in a way that ultimately was saying, even if you can't hope for yourself right now, we're going to hope for you until you can't hope for yourself again. And we're going to lift you up so that you can do what only you in, you know, at the beginning season Jay can do, which is to walk alongside Catherine in this horrific upending and to help her know she's not alone. And then in seasons ahead, you know what, we're going to uplift you guys with this story that has changed our life because we want you to continue to perpetuate that message out in the world. So we're going to, you know, help you in every, in, in every way possible. I mean, it's just, it's been an, a humbling and overwhelming experience of the past 12 years of our life to um, see the people that have come up and around us to to lift us up in a way that has quite shockingly not only just helped us heal or kind of get back to where we were before, but has has lifted us up beyond to a place of flourishing way beyond where we would have ever been before the stroke even. And it's, um, it's motivating to keep going. Jay, playing off of that, one of my favorite quotes from the book that you wrote together is this. I'm going to read it to you and then have you expand on it a, a bit. Sure. It was a surreal vision a waking dream, a stark reminder that perhaps in the breaking of precious things, something even more precious than we can imagine might be unleashed. 
perhaps Mm -hmm. in the breaking, we can find the healing we long for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is so much of of the imagery and the reality and the, I think, universal experience of our pain is that um, we're so afraid of what will happen if our dreams are broken or our bodies or our brains are broken. And those are legitimate fears. And certainly the experience of that is, uh, is an upending and it's, um, it's tragic for sure. And yet it's not the end of the story. I think that in nature, we see, you know, seeds breaking open in order for something new to grow. And we see, you know, pruning and, and there's sort of this, this theme that runs throughout the natural world. And it shouldn't be that different with humans that there can be um, this unleashing of something unexpected and deeper and greater and richer. Um, But something might have to break on the front end of it. And Mm -hmm. uh, again, not to acknowledge that that's not painful and that's, it's not like that's what we thought would happen. And yet again, to know that there's something that can come from that, that is, um, not just again about our own healing, but about somebody else's healing, about somebody else shifting their paradigm. It's it's this powerful redemptive experience that uh, we want to encourage everybody in their own pain around as well. We've certainly done it. We uh, let our friends online know that we were going to be interviewing you today, and I got a, a couple, many questions for them, but mostly praise for you hmm. and in your story. So I wanted to ask oh. a couple questions on behalf of our followers. Uh, one of them being Teresa Smith. Teresa and Catherine, this one is for you. She wrote, I am a wife and a mom with young kids, and I became chronically ill three years ago. It has turned my world upside down. Catherine, how do you cope with the uncertainty and the fear of the future and what your health holds? Oh, yeah. No, I I totally get that. I I honestly deal with anxiety and fear of so many issues with my children. i very physically cannot run. So unfortunately, tragically, I am plagued by nightmares of my children being taken and me not being able to keep up with them, to run down the kidnapper. I mean, just bizarre and tragic. But I share that specific to hopefully give you some comfort, Teresa, that it's really, it's tough. It is really hard to be a mother dealing with any kind of disability. And I um, I would say to you, Teresa, and to any other mothers who are listening, that um, there is such a comfort in knowing that, in fact, your children are learning things you can never just teach them with words, that your children are becoming different people by having a mother who is dealing with disabilities of all kinds. And in fact, um, your children are growing and learning and developing character that they wouldn't probably have otherwise uh, because, not in spite of, but because of your limitations. Wow. Well said. And Robbie Beasley Leonard had a question for you, Jay. And the question was, what advice would you give healthcare professionals, especially those who work in rehabilitation fields? Hmm. Well, I think to the rehab professionals who we just um, truly think the world of, and certainly we think the world of nurses and doctors and everybody, but um, somehow rehab we've, we've done for so many years and, and have grown so connected. Um, it, it's a really 
in, in a lot of ways, a thankless <laughs> job. And I mean, sometimes we, our vision of rehab, if we haven't been in it, is sort of like, you know, maybe older people doing some like aerobics and chairs or like, you know, on weight machines. And mm-hmm. uh, our, our, the rehabs we were a part of were brain rehabs for long-term uh, trauma, and TBI and stroke. And it was uh, the worst season of everyone's life that they were doing therapy together. And the unknowns of despair were great. And I think for those who enter in, first off, uh, to know how appreciated they are uh, by the patient and the family, you know, for their tireless and uh, life-giving work, but also to um, you know just recognize that there were plenty that were incredibly encouraging and life-giving um, to us as patients. There was also plenty who were, um, you know, who understandably kind of saw the patient as a project or a number and. Um, I think health professionals want to hedge the bet sometimes and they offer prognoses that are realistic and, um, and that's fair. You know, you don't want to give somebody false hope, but I think there is such um, a deficit of hope so often in these circumstances that, that we need all the hope and help we can get. And um, there were, you know, there were things that were said certainly that were um, that crushed my spirit. And luckily for my personality, it made me just want to push against it and say, no, that's not going to happen. I won't let that happen. You know, you think she's never going to eat again. Well, I'm not going to tell her that because I know that'll kill her spirit, but I'm going to help her keep pushing towards that goal in every way I can. And we did. So, um, yeah, there's just, um, so much gratitude for all the, the medical folks who offered their life's work to come alongside patients like us. And um, an, an interesting note is that we, you know, again, patients aren't always thinking, oh, I need to go thank my, you know, nurse or healthcare provider, like whatever. Uh, and we were always really quick to just offer, you know, bring in the cupcakes or whatever to the nurse state, you know, just trying to say, you're doing what we can't do for our loved one. And, um, and the doctor, I met, mentioned Dr. Nestor Gonzalez, um, the neurosurgeon who intervened in Catherine's first surgery also did a follow-up surgery years later to remove a separate aneurysm. And then he also um, intervened when Catherine um, was on the verge of another stroke about three years ago from a, from a dissection in the artery in her neck. And so this man, of course, you know, somebody sort of saved your life three times. There's just not a lot of words. You really him. Just, That's right. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, exactly. you just so, him big. It's pretty over the top. Yeah. And uh, he, he loves us. He's not married, doesn't have kids. So he really, you know, we're, we feel like family to him. And so Catherine was given the clearance after that second aneurysm surgery um, to, to get pregnant. And she had a baby biologically in 2015 named John. And so we named him John Nestor mm. Wolf for Nestor Gonzalez, uh, Catherine's neurosurgeon. So that is beautiful. Thought we could, yeah, that was the best way we could think of to, uh, to honor him. And so, and we even just, you know, we moved from California recently to Atlanta, but um, Dr. Nestor sends, you know, Christmas gifts for the, for his namesake and um, just feels like, you know, one day maybe John will go and be a resident at UCLA in the medical school. We're, we're, we're hoping for that, but we'll <laughs> not, not, Now you're making me want to name my next kid after our, our doctor, Vachi Avajan. So Vachi uh, Avajan okay. O'Leary coming your way, <laughs> Beth, when we have our fifth child. So stay That's, tuned, audience. We're I looking forward that to idea. that. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine and Jay, we, we have seven questions that we ask every guest. Um, we call them the Live Inspired Seven. And okay. so these questions tether all of our friends together. I think they're life affirming. I think you're going to really enjoy them. So in addition to the book, Suffer Strong, which came out on February 11th, and I cannot encourage people strongly enough to check it out. In addition to that, 
What is the best book you've ever read? Oh gosh, it's hard to say. I mean, I don't know if this was just the season I was in, um, but I listened to Barbara Brown Taylor's book, Learning to Walk in the Dark. Mm -hmm. And I can remember after several chapters, like my heart racing and stuff. And I um, I think that's when you know something really mm. moves you and you must love it. Um, so yeah, Bar one. Barbara Brown Taylor, Learning to Walk in the Dark is a phenomenal book about um, what do you do with darkness? Yes. And how do you interact with darkness? How do you live in it and walk? through it, um, but more than walking through to get out of it, how do you be in it? How uh -huh. do you um, how do you exist in darkness? And it was very profound. One quote that really struck me, um, new life always starts in the dark, mm. whether it's a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it all starts in the dark. And I really loved that too. Oof. That, that one will will uh, preach, as they say. So, uh, so Jay, what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a child in Montgomery that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Wow. Um, maybe it's not as much character, but I grew up with a lot of music in my life, and um, that was a big rhythm from piano and, and singing and stuff. And I feel like uh, in the recent season, that's kind of, Pentagon by the wayside. So we got a piano when we moved to Atlanta. And so it's at the moment, it's aspirational. Mm -hmm. I haven't quite jumped in, but um, yeah, kind of revisiting some of those childhood rhythms. I think I love, I love music. So one day we're hoping we're returning to music. And Catherine, if, yeah. if you're home, yes. if you're home in Atlanta caught fire and your children and your husband and your animals and everybody's out safely, and you had an opportunity to run inside or send Jay inside safely to grab mm -hmm. one item, what's oh, the goodness. what? What is um, the one item you would either come back with or you'd have Jay come back for you with? I mean, honestly, it would be very much like, do I have my phone in my pocket? Because if not, I got to get my phone or an iPad or something that has all our pictures on it. Right. Um, You're not really a stuff person. Although a Google Cloud, I guess, does. <laughs> Grab the, cloud, grab the Google Cloud. Grab the Google Cloud. Can you do that? Oh you you grab the cloud, the photo, the iPad. That all makes sense to me, and I, I'm sure it does to our listeners too. So, Jay, if yeah. you could sit not under the thunderstorm that you're experiencing today in Georgia, but on a bench overlooking a beach on a perfect day and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to? Mm, I love these questions. So good. Um, man, probably somebody historic and you know fascinating. I like uh, I like the idea of Mother Teresa, um, mostly because I think she I would get along with her communication style because she didn't mess and mince words. <laughs> yeah, she had so much wisdom. So we'd mostly just sit and probably look at the view, but then she'd give some great one-liners, kind of spicy ones, I think. So that'd be interesting. I completely agree. What, what, Catherine, what is the best advice you have ever received? I guess my father-in-law when I was in brain rehab and relearning to walk and it was not working for many months, he would say, you've just got to win. 
W-I-N, do whatever is necessary. And I remember internalizing that. And as I spent months and months relearning to put one foot in front of the other, I remember chanting in my head that I would do whatever is necessary, however many steps it took to win. And Jay, thinking about winning, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? I would tell my 20-year-old self, enjoy that flexibility while it lasts. Perfect. uh, I think that's so accurate for all of us at age 20, but in particular for the life that you have begun living together. And so the final question for both Catherine and Jay Wolf is this. It has been said, Catherine, we'll begin with you, that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Joyfully rebelling against how our world, our culture, views um, health and success. That's pretty strong. That's a good tombstone. uh, Thanks. Joyful rebellion. I don't know if that made any sense. It made perfect sense. And Jay Wolf, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Um, you're just going for the deep ones. I love it. Uh, the probably gave his life in unstoppable goodwill towards people in need and people he loved. Mm. Gave his life in unstoppable goodwill to people who in need and people he loved joyfully rebelling against the world's views of success. Life is good and hard. Mm. We were chosen for this. Hope heals, suffer strong, finish strong, and the best is yet to come. My friends, those are some of the comments that I heard today shared from our dear friends, Catherine and Jay Wolf. I, I know that you got as much value from this conversation as I. Catherine and Jay, I want to thank you for being inspirations. I want to thank you for reminding all of us that hope does in fact heal. Mm, thank you, John. Thank you so much, John. We loved being on here. Thanks for having us. My friends, that is Catherine and her husband, Jay Wolf. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Suffer strong, hope heals, and live inspired. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Before I leave you today, I want to invite you to return to the joy of navigating life as a child, packed with wonder, packed with inspiration, packed with meaning, packed with joy. Many of you are still asking, but John O'Leary, have you read the headlines? Do you know my life? Are you looking at what is coming our way? Are you looking at how cloudy the sky is and how much anxiety we have about what tomorrow might have in store? Well, I am. But my latest book, In Awe, is packed with fresh insights and action stories to reignite that inspiration, that meaning, and that joy for you and your journey forward. It may not make the difficulty of today completely disappear, but it will remind you for a fact that the best of your day remains in front of you. So let's go ahead and check out that book right now. Grab your copy of In Awe at the website, readinawe.com or wherever books are sold. My friends, for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary. This is your day. Live in awe and live inspired.